At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 48, The Occupation and the Rise of Democratic Japan. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this show possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation to our website. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we discussed how the Allies thought and planned for the occupation of Japan. We also examined what the Japanese thought about their defeat and prepared for the occupation. In this episode, we're going to examine how the actual occupation of Japan unfolded versus how it was planned by the Americans and anticipated by the Japanese. As always, forgive me for any mispronunciations. Moreover, as a warning, in this episode, we cover the topic of prostitution in Japan, which some listeners may find disturbing. Of the four major American occupations, Japan, along with Germany, is often cited as one of its greatest successes. Indeed, the economic and the political success of Japan is often cited by the United States as one of its greatest achievements in the 20th century. In the build-up to the Iraq War, the occupation of Japan was cited as proof that the United States could reform militarist societies into democratic nations. Nevertheless, it was overlooked how occupations politically and socially are not easy undertakings. Luck and circumstance also have a big impact on determining the success or failure of occupations. As we go through this episode, I hope you keep a few things in mind and spot the differences and similarities between the Allied occupation of Germany we spoke about in episode 20 and Japan. Additionally, keep in mind the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe that we spoke about in episode 33. Moreover, if you will try and remember the American occupation of Iraq, 2003 to 2011. It's something that's outside the scope of our show, but I'm sure for many of our listeners, it's something that occurred in our lifetimes. The American army that arrived to occupy Japan was well-fed, equipped, and confident, numbering some 250,000 men, forever shattering Japan's claim to have never been successfully invaded by a foreign power. In Japanese eyes, the United States was an extremely rich and powerful, and Japan humiliatingly weak and vulnerable. This, of course, is a simple observation, but it carried enormous political implications for Japan. If you recall from episode 46, many Japanese questioned the value of democracy and capitalism in the wake of the Great Depression and placed Japan down the path of extreme nationalism and militarism. To those Japanese that advocated democracy and the market economy, the surrender in Tokyo Bay represented the perfect rebuke to those ideas. Japanese nationalism and militarism had failed to measure up to American democracy and capitalism in the end. As planned, the United States administered Japan through the existing Japanese government and bureaucratic institutions. 
The Americans and MacArthur specifically used the personage of the emperor to legitimize policies of democratizing Japan. Out of this necessity, MacArthur and the Americans believed it was necessary to protect the emperor from any prosecution from the upcoming war tribunals. Moreover, in the turbulence of the years after the war, it was vital for him to remain on his throne. It's true that charisma of the imperial institution was immense in the eyes of most Japanese. Even the communists were reluctant to challenge the divinity of the emperor within Japanese society. Yet the throne and Hirohito himself were vulnerable in the year following the defeat of Japan. The world had seen the fall of many great monarchies in the preceding decades. The Qing dynasty in China had failed to survive, as had the Tsars in Russia, the Kaisers in Germany, the Emperor of Austria, or the Sultans of the Ottoman Empire. Monarchs had become an endangered species by the late 1940s. Some within Japanese society had begun to mock the emperor and the institution openly. The emperor's younger brother, 31-year-old Misaka, urged his brother to take responsibility for the war and to abdicate so that he may become emperor, making a clean break with the past. Hirohito argued that Misaka was too young to become emperor, although Hirohito himself had become emperor at 20. His other younger brothers, Tekamasu and Chibu, he argued were too pro-war and too ill. He maintained that only he could handle the responsibility. Nevertheless, well-known public figures from across the political spectrum were calling for the emperor to step down. Many at Tokyo University agreed with Misaka that the institution of the imperial household should be saved, but that Hirohito had to go. Some hoped that the emperor, given his personal failings, should make a public statement of moral leadership by giving up all his wealth for the poor and becoming a Buddhist monk. Had MacArthur chosen, he very easily could have removed Hirohito in favor of his younger brother or possibly his young son. Many Japanese conservatives would have seen the act as the reaffirmation of the moral authority of the imperial household. Many in the Truman administration wanted to see the emperor put on trial. Admiral Halsey wanted to ride the emperor's horse. In a Gallup poll, 70% of the U.S. population wanted the emperor executed or harshly punished. Many in army intelligence disagreed with Feller's and MacArthur's thoughts about the emperor. They argued if he was removed, it would result in some sporadic protest and demonstrations, but it would be over within a few weeks, as most Japanese were more focused on their own survival versus that of the emperor. MacArthur's and others, like Feller's, thought differently and saw Hirohito as an indispensable part of the occupation, and that as long as the U.S. occupied Japan, the institution of the emperor would continue. When General Eisenhower and the Joint Chiefs of Staff called for an investigation of the emperor, MacArthur pulled out all the stops to protect him. MacArthur told Eisenhower and the Joint Chiefs of Staff the emperor was a uniting figure of all Japanese, and if ind indicted, the nation would plunge into chaos. Guerrilla warfare would spread to the countryside, and all hopes of introducing democracy would be over. Therefore, he would require at least a million troops and an additional several hundred thousand civil service people to run the government for an indefinite number of years if they wished him to put the emperor on trial. Unwilling to call MacArthur's bluff, the Joint Chiefs of Staff backed down. Indeed, MacArthur believed the emperor's importance so much that he, they tampered with the witnesses of the Far East war crimes trials. Japanese war criminals such as Tojo were directed to not mention the role of the emperor in war planning and decisions so as to shield him from any prosecution. 
At one point in the proceedings, when Tojo accidentally mentioned the emperor's knowledge of imperial plans and reference to the war, the prosecution called for a recess and informed Tojo of his mistake. When the court returned to session, Tojo rescinded all his former testimony. When the emperor came to visit MacArthur, he and the imperial household were afraid. In a clear sign of American superiority, he had been summoned to see MacArthur and not the other way around. The Japanese had asked MacArthur to not touch the emperor's person and that no photos be taken, but the Americans disregarded these Japanese requests. MacArthur shook the emperor's hand, shocking the Japanese delegation, and then proceeded to get a photograph of the two with MacArthur towering over the emperor. The next day, the photo was printed in Japanese newspapers and a clear but respectful show that the Americans were now in charge. The two men would meet in all on 10 occasions. The Americans, it appears, never took notes of the meetings or they have been lost to history. The Japanese did take notes, but with two exceptions, they remained private and never made public. The two men, from what we understand, got along well, and once the emperor realized he wouldn't be charged with war crimes, calmed although he wasn't formally exonerated from war crimes until June 1946. One of MacArthur's secret fears was that the emperor, from the strain of defeat and the impending war trials, might abdicate or, worse yet, commit suicide. The emperor completely changed from his wartime persona. Gone was his military uniform and his appearance on the military parade ground. Now the emperor met with his subjects, unthinkable in imperial Japan, wore a blue suit, and was guarded by American GIs, not Japanese soldiers. The emperor then toured the nation, meeting his subjects and reviewing the damage to the nation. The precise origins of the tour idea is unknown, but it appears that the emperor had been deeply impressed with the closeness of the British to their monarch and wanted to recreate a similar relationship between himself and the Japanese people. Thus, his desire to go out amongst the common people like the King of England. MacArthur enthusiastically backed the tours, although there were worries of assassination, and he was escorted by a contingent of American troops. The emperor's attempts at communicating with his people were visibly awkward and uncomfortable for him, as he had been raised in the imperial etiquette and unfamiliar with common conversation or mannerisms. Nevertheless, his authenticity shone through, and the Japanese people quickly took to his new public persona. Wherever he traveled, he was greeted by large crowds where people jostled for a rare chance to view the emperor, which included not just Japanese, but American GIs and foreign journalists. Japanese townspeople saved his bathwater and bottles and the pebbles where he walked as hallmarks of his visits. Indeed, wherever he traveled, local officials looked to clean the area up and repair the roads. As the tourists became routine, local politicians began to solicit visits to enhance the prestige of their local communities. The emperor's circle also changed from industrialists and military figures to liberal politicians and high-ranking American occupation officials. The Americans loved the imperial pomp and circumstance, and the imperial household leveraged this curiosity to influence the shape of the occupation. American officials were regularly invited to duck hunts and geisha parties. Firefly catching, cherry blossom viewing on the palace grounds, and even the occasional wild boar hunt. The practice of marking contemporary time via the reign of the emperor was left unchanged, as the Showa era didn't end until 1989, whereupon the new emperor took the throne and the current Heisei period began and is due to end April the 30th, 2019, when Emperor Akihito resigns from office in favor of his son. Others were far less lucky than the emperor. 
That September, the Americans began their first round of arrest, which was followed by a second wave that November. The trials were then set to begin on May the 3rd, 1946. In all, there were some 55,000 trials held by the Dutch, British, Chinese nationalists, Australians, Americans, French, Filipinos, Soviet Union, and later Communist China between 1945 and 1951. These trials were held all over the Pacific with little or no records, but by our best estimate made by the Japanese government, some 5,700 individuals were indicted as war criminals. Of these, 984 were condemned to death, 475 received life sentences, 2,944 were given limited sentences, and 1,018 were acquitted. Most were lower-level Japanese enlisted men who served in prison camps, but a number of conspirators were also indicted, including 173 Taiwanese, 148 Koreans, uh, of whom 50 were executed. When all was said and done, though only a small number of generals, admirals, politicians, few bureaucrats, industrialists, academics, or media tycoons were made to stand trial for helping to manage, prosecute, and profit from the war that had cost the lives of millions of people. Despite Hirohito's continued reign, MacArthur was the undisputed head of the American occupation of Japan. Besides a small contingent of British and Australian troops stationed in Hiroshima, the Americans were the undisputed rulers of Japan. The Japanese tried to point to the Potsdam Declaration as the basis of their contractual and conditional surrender, but the Americans quickly disabused them of the idea that they were in any way equals. General MacArthur was the quintessential American to most Japanese and quickly became a part of Japanese political culture and pageantry. The new blue-eyed shogun of Japan, a paternalistic military dictator akin to Japan in the Tokugawa period. Like the shogun of the Tokugawa period, he enclosed himself in his headquarters and granted few interviews. He issued edicts with style and tolerated no criticism. He never toured Japan, but instead only traveled between his residence at the old U.S. Embassy and the American headquarters in one of the last standing buildings of Tokyo. Each morning and evening, he commuted between his residence and the headquarters with a motorcade, stopping traffic akin to the emperor himself. He never socialized with Japanese, and only 16 Japanese ever spoke with him, and of those who, who did, they were all the elites of Japanese society. In the evening, he watched Western films and newsreels of Japan shot by the U.S. Army, helping him to keep in touch with what was happening around the country. Prior to the outbreak of the Korean War in 1950, he only left Japan twice. MacArthur administered the country through a number of petty viceroys and roughly 3,200 military and civilian bureaucrats. Many of these people seemed surprisingly unqualified or young for the positions they had. MacArthur's personal attorney, who had been made his personal aide during the war, was given the task of supervising the purges and the policies regarding the emperor. Major General William Marquette, who had been a professional boxer and journalist before the war and another of MacArthur's aides during the war, became the chief of economic and scientific development. Farther down the chain, young American officers in their 20s and 30s with little practical experience and no ability to speak Japanese told more elderlier and experienced Japanese how to manage their offices. General MacArthur, the designated head of the occupation, had no serious first-hand knowledge of Japan beyond fighting them in the Second World War. There is no evidence that he read widely about the country, apart from intelligence reports. He did, however, speak to a number of historians about Japan. 
MacArthur, it is said, rarely asked his staff questions about Japan, and he never asked the Japanese himself during the occupation. The only real guides he attempted to imitate in his occupation of Japan were George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Jesus Christ, as pictures of the first two adorned his office in Tokyo. This quasi-imperial administration interpreted and promoted basic political, economic, social, and cultural policy, while cultivating the art of non-command with the force of commands. Even mid-level staff advice or suggestions to the Japanese that, though technically not orders, effectively acted as such. The 250,000-plus Americans that lived in Japan lived as a privileged caste, class, and race of people. They occupied what came to be known as Little America in downtown Tokyo, where clear-cut segregation was practiced. Ironically, at a time when imperialism throughout Asia was on the decline, as the British withdrew from India in 1947 when we were fighting an insurgency in Malaya, while France fought an insurgency in Vietnam, American rule of Japan remained uncontested throughout the occupation. Nevertheless, the Americans were viewed as very friendly by the Japanese for their spontaneous acts of friendliness, like the distribution of chocolates and chewing gum to Japanese children by American GIs. Many Americans were very interested in learning about Japanese culture and history, and Americans had a sense of responsibility towards strangers that Japanese came to admire. They took those in need of help to hospital and did favors without expecting favors in return, acts which were uncommon in imperial Japanese society. The Americans also distributed direct aid to Japanese people, which many Japanese found pleasantly surprising given the recent history of the two nations. The U.S. distributed food, medicine, blood for hospitals, books for public libraries, as well as tutoring and technical practices like statistical quality control. Very quickly, individual Americans and Japanese developed personal relationships in a number of settings. However, these relationships were defined very often by the Americans and were most often conducted in English and not Japanese. Numerous stores, theaters, hotels, buildings, trains, and recreational areas like golf courses were off-limits to Japanese. Ordinary American bureaucrats resided in upper-class homes which had been requisitioned from their owners. Many often employed, on average, three to six servants, all paid for by the Japanese government. State Shinto was disestablished, but Christmas decorations appeared every December. American flags flew from many tall buildings, whilst the display of the Japanese flag was severely restricted and the singing of the Japanese national anthem uh, prohibited. One man, for instance, who displayed the Japanese flag in Yokohama in 1948 was arrested and sentenced by the Americans to six months imprisonment and hard labor. The Americans also renamed streets and buildings. While the Japanese struggled to survive and bartered at the black market, the Americans shopped at PXs or military stores filled to the brim with luxury items. Japanese would often wait outside the stores. They weren't allowed to enter, looking through the windows in amazement. In the intensity of this ideological and emotional moment, the Japanese people were made the subjects of an unprecedented experiment, audacious in its ethnocentrism, but also ambitious in its idealism. This was democracy imposed on a nation by an authoritarian ruler, General MacArthur. Most successful revolutions, if you recall, were propagated from below. Moreover, these ideals and principles were being implemented by an outside power, the United States. Nevertheless, virtually all of the Americans were aware of these contradictions. On October the 4th, 1945, Supreme Commander MacArthur ordered the dissolution of all laws limiting political expression. The special higher police or the thought police were abolished. Political prisoners, many of whom had been left-wing critics of the government, were released. 
MacArthur met with the Japanese prime minister. He ordered him to extend the franchise to women, promote labor unionization, open schools to more liberal education, and to democratize the economy. In January 1946, the Americans also shut down the RAA units as they found the treatment of these women dehumanizing. They also outlined the practice of prostitution. Privately, though, their motivations for ending prostitution was venereal disease. Almost 90% of the RAA women tested positive for disease. In one unit of the U.S. Army, 70% of the men had contracted syphilis, and in another unit, 50% had contracted gonorrhea. The women who had served in the RAA units received uplifting speeches thanking them for their service to the nation, but with no severance pay or long-term benefits for their services to the Japanese state, despite the physical and mental toll it had taken on them. The ending of formal prostitution did not, of course, mean an end of prostitution in Japan. The trade simply moved behind the scenes, and venereal disease would remain an issue throughout the occupation. In December 1946, the Japanese authorities argued that women had a right to become prostitutes and establish zones or red-light districts for them to operate from. In the years that followed, 55,000 to 70,000 women worked full-time or part-time in these red-light districts. Many of these women were, however, foreigners who came to work in Japan's red-light districts. Male prostitutes also arrived to cater to the needs of gay GIs, but little public mention was made of them, and they failed to capture the public imagination like the Pan Pan Girls. The Pan Pan Girls came to epitomize the sex trade in post-war Japan, and in some sense the culture of the period. They were in many ways an elite in Japanese society. The origins of the word are said to date back to the South Pacific during the war. The Americans used the word to mean available women and brought the word with them to Japan during the occupation. Some Pan Pan girls served only Japanese customers, but most served just Americans. The distinction was rigidly enforced amongst the girls. Those who transgressed the rules could be physically attacked by the other Pan Pan. Many of the girls who became Pan Pan had been orphans or had lost everything in the war. Others took up prostitution to support their parents and siblings. Although some spent their money wisely to support themselves and their families, others blew their money on clothes and partying. This in turn attracted a great number of women to the pan-pan lifestyle in economically struggling Japan. Prostitution paid far better than most available jobs to women at the time. Pan-pan were typically loyal to a single American patron at a time called onri, a corruption of the English word of... Uh, only one or only one. The Pan Pan beyond their sexual services had special skills. Most had the ability to communicate in Panglish, a mixture of Japanese hooker slang and English, which gave them an ability to communicate with the Americans. Millions of other Japanese, in contrast, had no ability to communicate with their American overlords. The sight of the Pan Pan dressed up, wearing stockings, nails polished, and wearing makeup were luxuries beyond the reach of most Japanese women. Pan Pan riding gaily in a GI Jeep constituted a pain and humiliation to many Japanese men who were emasculated by the American occupation. In those years of hunger and desperation, the wealth of the Americans was staggering to the Japanese, and no other group in Japan had access to this wealth like the Pan Pan. Indeed, many Japanese girls were known to give their virginity for a pair of stockings. Regular rotations brought hundreds of thousands of American troops to Japan to staff the quarter-million-man army of occupation. From all accounts, very few of these men chose to remain celibate during their tours in Japan. By one estimate, 50% of the tens of millions of dollars that U.S. troops spent in entertainment in Japan 
during the occupation went into the purses of the Pan Pan. The Pan Pan also represented, by some account, the horizontal westernization of the nation. They were the closest to the Americans, literally and figuratively. They represented the capitalist consumerist society that would come to dominate Japan by the 1980s. The pan-pan culture nonetheless had some very negative side effects for Japanese women. Many American GIs came to see Japanese women as sex objects and little more. This colonial attitude led to many notorious incidents in which women on commuter trains were detained and examined for venereal disease as every Japanese woman was considered a potential prostitute. In many ways for the Americans, Japan was quickly transformed from a bestial warlike people which needed to be annihilated into a receptive, exotic people that were to be handled and enjoyed, which was personified by the Pan Pan. I want to take a moment here and thank our Patreon supporters and one-time contributors for making this show possible. Your contributions cover the cost of hosting the podcast, the website, and covering the cost of books, sources, and sound equipment. If you like episodes like this about Asian history, like this episode or episodes about the Malayan emergency or the French war in Indochina, Help us by making a donation or spreading the word, as we have a new series of episodes coming up exploring the Chinese Civil War. If you don't like how these ads interrupt the narrative or me begging for money, become a Patreon supporter so you can get access to the commercial-free episodes. Now back to the show. Hunger and starvation were serious problems in the early years of the occupation, and not just a byproduct of defeat. Disastrous harvests were exacerbated by confusion, corruption, and ineptitude on the part of post-war surrender elites. A majority of the Japanese were already malnourished as food shortages had begun in 1940. By 1944, the police were arresting vegetable thieves or those who stole vegetables in the field before they could be harvested. In Osaka Prefecture, authorities estimated 46% of all crimes were food-related. By 1945, food shortages were disrupting the war effort and damaging the society. Factory absenteeism rose nationwide as workers left the city to bargain for food in the countryside. The Allied policy of strangulation by sinking Japan's merchant marines had ensured that the island would starve as she lacked the ability to import enough food to feed her population. Japan was heavily dependent on foodstuffs from Korea and China, which provided some 31% of Japan's rice and 92% of its sugar. This policy also isolated many of Japan's garrisons serving in the South and Central Pacific, and by 1945, more men were dying of starvation than were dying in combat. By war's end, it was rare for any family, even the rich, to eat white rice as most people ate potatoes and barley, which were in themselves in short supply. Lack of workers, fertilizer, and farm equipment also contributed to the worst harvest since 1910, a shortfall of almost 40% from normal years. Compounding this, a large amount of the small crop that did exist ended up on the black market. Tokyo itself, the capital city, mind you, had only a three-day supply of rice. The government had even encouraged the people to supplement their diet with acorns, grain husks, peanut shells, and sawdust. For minerals, people were encouraged to eat tea leaves and roses. For protein, they were encouraged to eat insects, mice, rats, snakes, and the dried blood of domesticated animals. It was very common, in fact, for families to send their children out to catch frogs for dinner. As you can imagine, pets like dogs and cats began disappearing as well. As a result of these events, children on average were physically smaller in 1946 than they had been in 1937. Birth rates dropped and mortality rates rose. The Japanese warned the Americans that if Japan did not receive immediate food shipments, as many as 10 million people would starve. Indeed, even the middle class and moderately wealthy were suffering. 
The head of the German department at Tokyo University, high-ranking government employee, died of malnutrition. In 1947, a 31-year-old judge starved to death as he refused to become a hypocrite by prosecuting people who had shopped at the black market while he himself did. As a result, he starved to death in his attempt to live off of his government allotted rations. Meanwhile, amongst the poor and homeless, at least six people a day were dying of starvation. In Japan's five biggest cities, an estimated 733 people had already died of starvation, and in Tokyo, an estimated 1,000 or more had died of starvation. Thankfully, food shipments from the United States helped to avert the immediate disaster. In the process, helping to enhance America's image as a generous conqueror amongst the Japanese people. The United States would indeed continue to aid Japan through several programs throughout the occupation, but hunger and lack of food would remain a concern of Japan throughout the occupation. The, the mainstay for most Japanese was watered-down rice, homemade bread, and steamed sweet potatoes for most of the occupation. Indeed, residents of Tokyo failed to receive a full month's ration in six out of the 12 months for 1946. Despite normal harvests in 1947, deliveries of rice were still behind schedule. Citizen groups quickly emerged to protest the lack of food and the slow deliveries, and in a way served as a force in grassroots political activism. Many schools closed or moved to morning-only lessons because they could not provide school lunches. By the government's own standards, people needed 2,200 calories a day to perform light work. By December 1945, rations had fell to below half this much, and by 1947, as a result of delivery problems, rations fell to a quarter of the requirement. In these circumstances, most Japanese turned to the black market. By 1948, it was joked that the only Japanese that lived legally were those in jail. In all, some 1.2 million Japanese were arrested for illegal black market transactions in 1946, a number that would continue to grow, reaching its height in 1948 at 5 million. As a result of the destruction and starvation of the war and its immediate aftermath, disease became a serious issue. Deaths from dysentery doubled to 25,000 by 1945. Between 1945 and 1948, over 650,000 people were reported to have contracted cholera, dysentery, typhoid, fever, smallpox, etc. Of this number, 99,654 died with tuberculosis being the greatest cause of death. Not until 1951 did deaths from disease drop below 100,000. As you can imagine, the rates of alcoholism and violent crime also rose steadily which helped to fuel the rise in mortality rates, especially as some of the alcohol was made of dubious and dangerous ingredients. Illegal drug use also rose with heroin being the drug of choice. In contrast to the war years when the crime rate had fallen, many Japanese felt that Japan had entered a lawless era. Unsurprisingly, armed robbery, theft, and the handling of stolen goods exploded in the post-war years. The press, now more or less unfettered, published stories about these crimes, growing the sense of lawlessness in the society. As far as the Americans were concerned, though, Japan's crime figures were still lower than those in the United States, so it didn't set off any alarm bells. Economically, though, throughout the occupation, Japan continued to struggle with material shortages, rampant inflation, staggering productivity, and high unemployment until 1949. Inflation was the result of poor policy decisions made by both the Japanese and the Americans, which was compounded by outright corruption. Inflation had started to pick up in 1942, but didn't become a serious problem until 1945, when the government printed large sums of money to prepare for the defense of the home islands, spending some 85 billion yen on defense that year.
Wholesale prices doubled in 1945 and continued to multiply, increasing by 539% by 1946, 336% in 1947, 256% in 1948, and 127% for 1949. When the Americans took over, they hesitated about making economic decisions, and Japanese investors and capitalists kept their money on the sidelines, not wanting to invest in businesses that might not be there in six months to a year. Compounding these problems, organized crime, former military officers, and corrupt politicians manipulated market forces for their own personal gain. In addition to this, the state had expenses in ending the war. Japan had to pay for the repatriation of her citizens and soldiers from overseas. The Japanese also had to pay for the upkeep of the American occupation forces, which proved to be very expensive, consuming one-third of the Japanese budget for years to come. While some 3.7 million families still lacked housing in 1948, the government was required to direct a substantial portion of its annual budget to provide housing and facilities for the conquerors, ensuring that they met American living standards. Moreover, these huge costs had to be kept secret from the Japanese people, as the Americans forbid the Japanese government and press from publicly speaking about them. To try and get a control on inflation, the government issued a new yen, imposed wage and price controls, and promoted priority production to try and jumpstart the economy. However, as we have seen in other episodes, post-war economic problems weren't unique to Japan. Even the United States had economic issues with moving from a wartime to a peacetime economy. Japan's problems were exacerbated by its defeat in the war and the loss of her substantial empire. Korea, Formosa, and Manchuria had become integrated parts of the Japanese economy. Manchurian coal and natural resources, conscripted Korean laborers, and Chinese prisoners were vital parts of the economy. Indeed, Japan would suffer from a coal famine until 1950. As a result of all this destruction and suffering that endured in Japan for years after the war, many Japanese came to see themselves as the victims of the Second World War, as the misery and destruction of other lands by Japanese forces was not visible to them. Many non-Japanese gangs also vied with the local Japanese, such as the Koreans and Formosans, for control of the black market. This led to a prejudice against, quote, third country people, and the rise in crime was partly blamed on then. Moreover, many Japanese argued that if the emperor was not to be held responsible for the war, how could they, as private individual Japanese, be held responsible for the war and the behavior of the Japanese government? The American occupation did have some economic benefits to war-ravaged Japan beyond prostitution, though. There were many pockets of prosperity as a result of the Americans. A number of Japanese businessmen became wealthy by creating Christmas greeting cards for the Americans to send home as early as November 1945. The Americans also purchased Japanese cigarettes with the Japanese government monopolized. Indigenous liquor manufacturers also prospered in serving the needs of thirsty GIs. The Western clothing manufacturers, especially dressmakers, did well selling their wares to the Pan Pan. Dressmaking schools, fashion magazines, and variety magazines also did well, in large part due to the pan-pan. The semi-free press introduced by the Americans also benefited Japan, although some subjects were off-limits, uh, including any criticism of the Allies or their policies, or praise of values or ideals the Americans deemed militaristic or ultra-nationalist. Moreover, crimes of the American servicemen went unreported in the news. Despite these restrictions and limited paper, the press exploded. Until 1951, paper remained in short supply and was subject to complicated rationing. At war's end, there were some 300 publishing companies, and by October 1945, that number had grown to 2,000. 
peaking in 1948 at 4,600. Magazine numbers grew from 200 in 1945 to 400 by 1946. Close to 1,000 new books were published by the end of 1945 by many authors who had been imprisoned or suppressed by the imperial regime on a variety of topics, many considered too taboo under the imperial regime. Despite the freedom of the written press, the Americans insisted on a monopoly over the medium of radio creating the NHK similar to CBS and NBC. Many in the press argued that the Showa era had betrayed the legacies of the Meiji and Taisho era. They argued that democracy, respect for individuality, freedom of speech, and religion and world peace were good in of themselves, not because they were ordered by the Americans. They were based on the demands of human nature and universal justice. Of all the American changes to Japan, politically and socially, the biggest was the introduction of a new constitution, not based on the divinity of the emperor, but in the principle of popular sovereignty with a more extensive range of human rights than even the U.S. Constitution, which set forth anti-militarist ideals at the very center of the national charter. The Japanese conservatives and some liberals believed that Japan didn't need a new constitution as Japan had been a flourishing democracy in the 1920s and that once the militants were removed from power and the liberals rehabilitated, Japan once again would become a functioning democracy. The Americans, though, feared what the situation would look like 10 or 20 years after the occupation ended and the Japanese were once more led to their own devices. Therefore, they favored putting a new constitution in place preventing a return to extreme nationalism and militarism. The Japanese elites tried to convince the Americans that there were fundamental Asian and Western approaches to constitutional government that needed to be taken into consideration. But the Americans didn't buy this argument and argued that the Japanese constitution was copied from the German constitution and not mythical Japanese traditions. MacArthur and the Americans decided that the Japanese were incapable of writing their own constitution. Hence, it would fall to the United States to write Japan a new constitution. The document was written in secret by a team of American men and women in a week-long marathon session at the American headquarters. MacArthur believed it was necessary to rush through a new constitution before Japanese Republicans or Communists gathered too much strength in society, putting the emperor in jeopardy. The team that wrote the constitution was composed of 24 people, 16 officers, and 8 civilians, which included 7 women. Many of those who were officers were not career military officers, but had joined the army as a result of the war and had distinguished civilian careers before the war. The group included four lawyers, a former congressman, the governor of Puerto Rico, a recent Princeton PhD in public administration, a newspaper editor, a publisher, a Wall Street investor, an intelligence specialist, a professor in social science, a professor of business, a foreign service officer, a Chinese historian, and a journalist who had lived in pre-war Japan. All 24 covered the spectrum of American political beliefs, from conservative Republicans to liberal New Deal Democrats. This working group was divided into a steering committee and seven subcommittees. Over the next seven days, they worked from 7 a.m. to midnight to finish the document. Because of the group's civilian background, rank was overlooked, and a non-hierarchical atmosphere was established where opinions were freely expressed. Some members spoke a little Japanese, but only Betty Satora, a 22-year-old Jewish woman, was fluent in Japanese, in addition to four other languages, and had studied at music at Tokyo University. Most of the members did not feel as though they were writing a constitution for Japan, but were helping to write a constitution that the Japanese people wanted, but their leaders were unwilling to grant. 
The committee was given three broad points by MacArthur, ensuring the survival of the emperor, the demilitarization of Japan, and democratization. They were also guided by the Potsdam Declaration, SWNCC 228, the official U.S. report on reforming Japan. The draft document of the U.N. Charter was also reviewed. The U.S. Constitution did not have a direct influence, but its influence on the document is undeniable. This was especially true of the preamble, which resonated with echoes of the Gettysburg Address and the U.S. Constitution. MacArthur stayed out of the day-to-day work of writing the Constitution, but was aware of the day-to-day work of his subordinates. The emperor would remain head of state, but lost his divine status as a living god, and Japan became a constitutional monarchy with its sovereignty rooted in the Japanese people, not the divinity of the emperor. Nevertheless, on a technical note, the emperor did not surrender the fact that he was a descendant of the sun goddess, a mytho-history of Japan that had been set forth in the 8th century. The Japanese also formally denied that they were superior to other peoples. Japan also lost the right to wage war. The feudal system of peerage and nobility beyond the emperor and his immediate family was also abolished. Civil law, criminal law, family law, the law of the gov- governing the imperial household were all rewritten in the more colloquial Japanese. On March the 6th, 1946, a draft outline of the Constitution was delivered to the Diet for deliberation and adoption. The Americans kept their involvement in writing the Constitution and in the Diet secret as all instructions were delivered to the Diet orally as there would be no paper trail. Many of the drafters of the Constitution feared that there would be right-wing violence as a result of the new Constitution, especially as the divinity of the emperor was dropped and the inherent superiority of the Japanese people disavowed. Indeed, the Japanese education minister is said to have received only one complaint from an elderly man. By and large, most Japanese people had come to expect the changes to the Constitution, so it was more or less already baked into the cake. Yoshida, the prime minister, convinced Japanese conservatives that in the circumstances of defeat and occupation, the new constitution was an ideal but a practical political matter of saving the country, preserving the throne, and hastening the day when the Americans would leave. The Americans also made vast changes to Japanese society culturally and economically through their policy of democratization. They understood that the meaningful democratization involved more than simply issuing edicts and advising the Japanese bureaucrats. It was essential for individual Japanese people to change their way of thinking. To this end, occupation authorities created a web of programs designed to reach every man, woman, and child in the country. They dispatched teams, mainly of men, but some women also, to local communities to provide grassroots tutelage in American-style civics. Until the end of occupation, they required the Japanese to translate all textbooks to English for American review. Educational reform liberalized the curriculum, promoted co-educational egalitarianism, and more access to universities. The impact of the defeat on Japanese teachers was significant. They had been dogmatic in their support of the regime and the indoctrination of the cult of the emperor and militarism. Now overnight, they had to not only think differently, but to teach differently. This met with a spectrum of different responses. Many introduced the new material with zeal. They had taught militarism and nationalism. Others reluctantly taught the ideals of democracy. Many, though, did feel guilt for advocating the war and militant system for which so many of their former students had died in vain. Teachers, like many other professions in post-war Japan, unionized and, if to atone for their past sins, took a much more confrontational stance in the state's role in education. 
Indeed, the most powerful teachers' unions were closely affiliated with the Communist Party, and by 1948, the Americans were complaining to the Japanese about the numbers of communists in the classroom. Reform of the Civil Code eliminated the legal underpinnings of Japan's patriarchal family system and strengthened the position of women in critical areas such as divorce and inheritance. Virtually all of these reforms were implemented and in parts instigated by a huge Japanese bureaucracy outside American advisors. In a move echoing Thomas Jefferson, the Americans wanted to greatly expand the yeoman farming class in Japan that they believed would be the backbone of the new democratic Japan. By 1946, the efforts at land reform were underway. The U.S. wanted to eliminate the class of poor Japanese tenant farmers. Nearly all the land owned by absentee landlords was confiscated and redistributed to tenant farmers with generous terms. In addition, those landlords that owned more than 2.5 acres of land had to relinquish their land and sell it to rent their tenants. Finally, laws were passed to protect those tenant farmers that remained against the worst abuses of the landlords. In the cities, Americans saw the, the establishment of unions as a counterbalance to the interests of big business. In theory, just as unions had served as the foundation of the New Deal in the United States, so would the Japanese unions in Japan. Moreover, the Americans hoped that unions would provide the Japanese with valuable lessons in democracy through electing leaders and organizing. By the end of 1945, some 380,000 Japanese were in unions, and by 1948, some 6.7 million Japanese belonged to a union comprising about half the non-agricultural workforce. White-collar workers, especially in the public sector, also became heavily unionized as a result of high inflation. Strikes and labor disputes were a common occurrence throughout the public sector. Between 1946 and the end of 1950, some 6,432 disputes involving over 19 million workers were recorded, including 3,048 strikes supported by 5 million workers. The majority of disputes were focused on wages, were settled quickly, though. Moreover, the Americans introduced sweeping changes to Japan's labor laws. Strikes and collective bargaining, which had been illegal before 1945, were now legalized. The Allies proposed that all eligible workers be allowed to organize and join unions. They also proposed that all workers, whether in the private sector or public sector, be allowed to bargain collectively. They pressed the Japanese government to pass a labor standards law in 1947, which provided basic protections for all workers and advanced protections for women and children. In the Japanese constitution, the government also guaranteed a minimal level of social welfare. Women also gained explicit equality before the law, a dramatic change from the place of women in imperial Japan. Organized labor was to serve as the countervailing force to that of the large capital, especially Zaibatsu, which the Allies viewed as intrinsically evil, both in business practices and because they had all contributed to the extreme nationalism and militarism to the start of the war. Much of this thinking had been heavily influenced by the New Deal in America during the 1930s. To eliminate the concentration of wealth, officials confiscated the stock holdings of 56 members of 14 leading Zaibatsu families. They also confiscated the stocks and bonds belonging to the major Zaibatsu holding companies. These shares were then sold on the open market to individual buyers. Reforms also eliminated holding companies themselves, thereby destroying the managerial nerve center of the Zaibatsu empires. Culturally and socially as well, the Americans made major changes to Japanese society. The state Shinto religion, which had become a bulwark of imperial Japan, was abolished. On December the 15th, 200,000 individuals, mostly officers, but also politicians, were banned from holding office for the rest of their lives. 
The radicalism of MacArthur's changes to Japan's society were shocking to Japan's elites. Had they been left to rebuild Japan, they would have never dreamed of instituting such drastic changes to Japan's society. To Japan's conservatives, in a perceived time of crisis, the objective should have been to preserve as much of the existing social order as possible in an attempt to facilitate some social stability. Japanese cabinet members wept openly when confronted with some of the reforms ordered by the Americans, distraught in their inability to prevent what they saw as the destruction of sacred traditional Japan. The Japanese elite argued that Japan was incapable of democratic self-rule, and those who believed otherwise were ignorant of, of Japanese culture and traditions. They rejected the belief that the disaster that had befallen Japan was the result of militarism and extreme nationalism. They argued that the disaster had been the result of a handful of high-ranking officers who had hijacked the nation and made irrational and bad decisions against the interests of Japan. Therefore, from their perspective, sweeping structural changes and reforms were unnecessary. In their perspective, all they needed to do was to turn the clock back to the 1920s to before the militarists took the nation over. In the beginning of the occupation, from 1945 to 1947, the communists supported the American authorities, even calling the Americans the, quote, army of liberation, close quote. But they, too, believed that the Japanese people had to be led to democracy by a communist vanguard as the masses were backward and in need of leadership. The leader of the Communist Party returned from his long exile, Nosuka Sanzo. He promoted a peaceful revolution in compliance with the occupation authorities. He desired to create a, quote, lovable Communist Party. He even softened the party's position on the emperor, arguing that although the emperor should have no political power, his status as a religious figure should be left to a popular referendum once a genuine people's democracy had been established. In the April 1946 election, the communists did win seats to the Diet, but the real power was not in parliamentary politics, but in organized labor and organizing mass protest. Fierce struggles ensued between them and the socialists before the communists succeeded in taking control of over two-thirds of Japan's organized labor. The aftermath of defeat and economic collapse brought a great deal of political instability to Japan despite the presence of the Americans. The first election was held in April 1946. Women were allowed to vote for the first time, and some 2,770 candidates ran representing no less than 363 political parties. 95% of these candidates had never held public office, although a little over half were affiliated with one of the major five parties. The 1946 election in Japan delivered no clear majority, but a coalition of conservative parties was able to form a government with Yoshida as prime minister. This fractious party remained in power just one year, during which a number of reforms were introduced. May Day 1946 saw huge protests around food shortages. Both radical and moderate socialist groups attracted substantial support among voters and in the labor movement. Some 250,000 people gathered in front of the Imperial Palace. This crowd contained a great number of women, including housewives with their children, as well as women teachers and students. The American authorities condemned the protests, which won popular support amongst Japanese conservatives, and MacArthur promised further American shipments of food. The United States had clearly come down on the side of conservative democratic forces in Japan. The following week, though, a thousand students from 20 universities, colleges, and technical schools in Tokyo sponsored another round of May Day protests and called for the dismissal of war criminal professors. That October, both communist and socialists led a nationwide October offensive in which some three million workers went on strike. 
Key industries were closed down, along with telephones, except those needed by the American occupation forces. The rail lines were also continued to operate for occupation forces. When negotiations broke down between the Japanese government and strikers, MacArthur intervened, not allowing the strike to continue, given its damage to the economy. The Japanese conservatives were ecstatic. While Japanese labor unions wept openly, and the more more radical among them now looked upon the United States with bitterness as the U.S. as they saw the U.S. as hypocrites, hoping to shore up his support for the new government, Yoshida called for another election in April 1947, but lost in an upset to the socialists. The socialists, though, were unable to deal with the many issues, and the conservatives were able to regain power in 1949. The communist and radical wing of labor became more militant, alienating American authorities further and pushing the Americans into the arms of Japanese conservatives. The U.S. soon began to compile lists of these communists and radicals. In the summer of 1948, MacArthur withdrew the right of public employees to strike. By 1949, the Americans began to openly purge the Japanese communists from public life and to to break radical unions. After the beginning of the Korean War in 1950, the purges were extended to the private sector. At the same time, many of those from the imperial regime who had been purged from office were rehabilitated. In December 1948, the Americans also appointed an economic czar to turn the nation's economy around, Joseph Dodge. In April 1949, Dodge pegged the Japanese yen to the dollar, undervaluing the yen to stimulate exports by making Japanese manufactured goods cheaper on the world market. He cut public benefits, unemployment rose, domestic consumption plummeted, and bankruptcies and suicides spiked, but by 1950, inflation had been reined in. In May 1950, in the first major violent confrontation of the occupation, four Americans were stoned and roughed up by the communist demonstrators who were quickly arrested. In the following days, MacArthur purged all 24 communist members from the government and 17 communist editors. Most communists went underground for the rest of the occupation or escaped to communist China. Communists and socialists would continue to be elected to the Diet throughout the Cold War and continue to take a part in the public debate, becoming the country's harshest critics of their alliance with the United States. Ultimately, the Korean War would help to jumpstart the Japanese economy. The metals and steel industry rushed to meet the demands of the war, along with refining, cloth, finished textile goods, medicines, vehicles, and parts. These procurements by the U.N. war effort brought in some $2.3 billion between 1950 and 1953, a sum that exceeded the sum of aid received by the United States between 1945 and 1951, in a way more valuable as the payments came in dollars versus foodstuffs. Even after the Korean War in 1953, the U.S. military spent an additional $1.75 billion in Japan from 1954 to 1956. Steel production grew by some 38% and exports tripled. The automobile industry was revived as the U.S. purchased large numbers of trucks and other vehicles. Japan would become the workshop of democracy in Asia to defend against the spread of communism in China, Korea, Indochina, and Malaya. The U.S. occupation of Japan was successful primarily for three reasons in my analysis. First, it clearly demonstrated to the Japanese through the surrender ceremony and the occupation itself that Japan was defeated, discrediting much of Japan's wartime leadership. Moreover, it discredited many of the former regime's ideals around state Shintoism and extreme nationalism. This was an important fact as demonstrated in the counterexamples such as the end of the Second Gulf War, defeat of Iraq, and the defeat of Germany in World War I. Germany was never occupied outside of the Ruhr Valley, and despite Iraq's occupation, the U.S. and coalition forces never held a formal surrender ceremony of the Iraqi government. 
Instead, the coalition tried to make the invasion appear as a liberation. In the case of both Germany and Iraq, these muddled ends of the conflict allowed for counter-political narratives to develop. If you remember your von Clausewitz, war is politics by other means, not an end into itself. At the end of the First World War and the Second Gulf War, it was not made clear to the Germans and the Iraqi people that their governments and their ideals which underpinned those governments had been defeated. In Japan, it was made very clear to the Japanese that they were conquered people and that the ideals and beliefs of the old regime were widely discredited. Second, the Americans were much more prepared for the occupation of Japan than they were of Iraq. From what I've read, the U.S. planned for a short occupation of Iraq for about a year with the assumption that they would be greeted as liberators. Moreover, the U.S. had not planned for a contingency of becoming the governing authority for Iraq for a protracted period of time. From a military standpoint, the U.S. lacked the troops to restore order after toppling the Iraqi government and for the possibility of an insurgency. In the occupation of Japan, the United States spent a great deal of time thinking about what post-war Japan should look like and the region in general. They had also planned for a three-year occupation and it expected to encounter armed resistance to their control of the country. The U.S. deployed 250,000 troops to the occupation of Japan, more than double the amount that were deployed to Iraq. Another occupation myth that was spoken about was the need for the U.S. to rebuild Iraq economically to be successful. Yet, if we look at the American occupation of Japan, the United States provided very little to help Japan economically until late in the occupation. Indeed, the Japanese, despite the weakness of their economy, were forced to pay for the cost of the occupation. Finally, the U.S. removed the Iraqi bureaucracy and anyone who had been a Ba'athist from power, meaning the entire Iraqi government would have to be rebuilt from scratch. In Japan, the Americans used the existing bureaucracy and even the emperor extensively to rebuild the nation. Now, it's understandable that the coalition forces did not try and use Saddam the same way that MacArthur had used Hirohito. His crimes were much more extensive and well-documented. Nevertheless, the dismissal of the Iraqi army and bureaucracy were huge mistakes in retrospect. In the build-up to the invasion in 2003, the occupation and rehabilitation of Germany and Japan were cited as examples of what Iraq could be, but it appears very little historical study and research within the government was done on this occupation. Again, this is a clear example of applied history and how American leadership failed to take these examples under careful consideration. Moreover, it also illustrates Ben Franklin's maxim that those who fail to plan are planning to fail. As always, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode as we examine the Chinese Civil War and the rise of communism in China. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. If you don't have a lot of friends in history and you're already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show.
At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.